Hello, and welcome again to Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us today as we delve into the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. Now, if you're new to our podcast, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the rest of Romans. It'll lay the groundwork for where we are today. But we're glad that you could join us today as we begin digging into God's Word some more, seeking to truly grasp Scripture, to understand what God is saying, what he spoke to those in that original day through the pen of Paul, what it meant to them, and how that applies to our lives today as God is speaking to us through his word. So again, I'm glad you could join us. I welcome you. And this is going to be a fun journey as we seek to truly grasp scripture, to understand God's word. Let's turn to him in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. You have provided for us. You have redeemed us because of your great love for us. And not because we were good enough, because we weren't. And we aren't. But Father, you have made your grace evident. You have reached out to humanity and given us what we could not obtain. And Lord, we acknowledge that is your grace and your grace alone. And we stand in awe of you. Now, Lord, as we dig into this text and as we seek to to grasp hold of, to understand, and to live out what you are showing us here, help us to hear what you have for us. Give us hearts that are sensitive to your spirit that we might respond to you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we begin looking at the 11th chapter of Romans, uh, just a quick reminder. The church at Rome was a church made up of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And there had been a, a power play going on, essentially because the the Jewish believers had been kicked out of Rome by the emperor, the city of Rome, for a period of time, and the Gentiles had had to take over the leadership of the church. And now we have reached a time where the Jews have come back into Rome, the Jewish background Christians have come back into Rome and have rejoined the church, and there's this conflict going on. And part of it is being, well, being exacerbated by the fact that some of those of Jewish background that were coming back were advocating a return to Jewish law, Jewish religious practices, and things of that nature. And that really wasn't working for the Gentiles. And Paul had to weigh in on it and say, look, you're off base. It's not about the law. It's not about works. It is about faith in Christ. For both the Jew and the Gentile, that is what brings salvation. And he takes that argument all the way back to Abraham and lays out in the preceding chapters this extensive explanation of salvation through faith, not works, that we we cannot put our faith in the law, we must put it in Christ, that it is not our own righteousness, it is the, the righteousness of God through Christ given to us as a gift, not something earned. 
that's the framework for where we find ourselves now in the 11th chapter. Because part of what we see happening in the 11th chapter, Paul has been talking to the Jews or the Jewish background Christians and explaining to them how their view of things was wrong. Now he's going to confront the Gentiles on some of their attitudes and explain things a little more clearly to them. Because apparently there had been an attitude of arrogance that had developed among the Gentile believers in the church at this point too. So up until this point in the book, you've probably only picked up on the Jewish background Christians being the ones in the wrong, and and they were wrong. The problem is we start thinking in a, in a dichotomy. We start thinking if they're wrong, then this group is right. What Paul's doing is bringing everyone under the correction of Christ back to where they should be to begin with and pointing out where each group is wrong. Because it's not a I'm right and you're wrong or you're right and I'm wrong. It's we're all wrong and we need to get more in line with Christ to be right. And so that's where we find ourselves as we venture into the 11th chapter. So let's take a look at the passages. Starting out in the 11th chapter, you find these words. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Now, what brings that question about? Well, you'll remember the end of chapter 10. It ends with the verse, but regarding Israel, God said, now this is a reference back, uh, not just to the previous chapter, but he's quoting from Isaiah 65. He says, all day long, I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. That's how he's referring to the people of Israel, to, to the Jews, that they have been disobedient and rebellious, and he has opened his arms to them all day long. Uh, this implication of he's waiting for them to turn, to come be held by their father, and they've rejected, they've disobeyed, they've gone and done their own thing. So that's where 10 leaves off. But 11 immediately picks up with, I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's saying, you know, that's a dumb idea. Of course he hasn't rejected Israel. So something else is going on here. Verse 2, no, God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you not realize that this, what the scripture says about this? Elijah, the prophet, complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Remember that? Uh, under Ahab and Jezebel, they had slaughtered the prophets. The whole nation seemingly had turned to the worship of Baal. Elijah was feeling, well, alone, abandoned, isolated, hunted, he was pretty despondent, and he cries out to God, you know, I'm the only one left. They killed everybody. They don't worship you anymore. They tore down your altars. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. He was at the bottom. He was at that point of going, what's the point? But how did God respond? In verse 4, and do you remember God's reply? 
He said, no, I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. It is the same today, for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, but free and undeserved. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found favor or found the favor of God they're looking for so earnestly. A few have. The ones God has chosen. But the hearts of the rest were hardened. As scripture says, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day, he has shut their eyes so they do not see and close their ears so they do not hear. Now, that's a pretty heavy chunk of scripture there, isn't it? it? It's pretty indicting, and it's got some challenging things in it. So let's work to unpack that a little bit. Now, the first part's pretty clear. Uh, we see that situation with Elijah. We see that he was feeling like it was all lost, like he was the only one left. And God had to give him a perspective check and say, look, you can't see everything. You don't know everything. Now, God didn't say that. That's the essence of the meaning behind what he was telling him. No, I've got 7,000. You say there's nobody? I've got 7,000 over here that have not done pretty well, not decided to come around, but have never bowed down to Baal. They have remained faithful. And then Paul brings it to the modern day, for him, the modern day, for his current time, he says, it's the same today. For a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful. Paul is drawing forward this idea of the remnant that is spoken of in the Old Testament. Because although God chose the nation of Israel, the whole people of Israel, even to, to lead them out of Egypt there in the beginning, but you understand that basically, a few exceptions, but basically no one who walked out of Egypt as a responsible adult walked into the promised land. It didn't happen. In fact, they wandered in the wilderness for the purpose of that entire generation dying off. Why? Because they were unfaithful. Because they were not obedient. When God said, send spies, check out the land, and then go in, the spies came back, and all but two of them said, oh, <laughs> they're giants. They'd accidentally step on us like we were bugs and not even notice. We can't do that. That's crazy. The other two, hey, <laughs> the stuff there is awesome. Like, just to haul a bunch of grapes, it would take more than one of us. So this is awesome what God's prepared for us. Let's go get it. But as a nation, they stood against Moses, Caleb, Joshua, and said, no, we're not doing it. They rebelled against God. Back to the end of chapter 10, they were disobedient and rebellious. We see that over and over again throughout the history of the nation of Israel. 
But at the same time, we also see that remnant, those that remained faithful and obedient to God throughout that whole history as well. Even in the darkest of times, even when the king and queen worship Baal, where they have wiped out all public observance of the worship of God and turned it all into pagan cultic practices, where it seems like all of the people of the nation have turned against God to the point that the prophet Elijah says, I'm all alone. There's no one else. And yet God steps in and says, no, you're not alone. I have 7,000 over here that not only are faithful right now, but have been faithful, that have never bowed down. See, we don't see everything. God does. We don't know the hearts of all men. God does. And God is at work even when we don't see it. It's not a a prerequisite for whether God is working that we see it and acknowledge it. He is God. He is at work. He has a plan and a purpose, and he is carrying that out. It's our perspective that's the problem, not what God is doing. And so we move from that situation into Paul saying, hey, it's, it's the same today. There is a faithful remnant. There are those Jews that have come to faith in Christ. There are those Jews that when presented with the good news of Christ, place their faith in Jesus and receive salvation, and that they are the true Israel. They are the true spiritual descendants of Abraham because they have trusted in Christ, not in works, not in their own efforts, not in the things of this world, but they have trusted in Christ through faith. And so he says, this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found favor of God they're looking for so earnestly. Think back to the beginning of chapter 10. If you weren't with us for that, go back and listen to it. Paul starts out going, you know, I I love the zealousness, the eagerness of my people, the Jews, to follow God, but they're misdirected. They're following the wrong thing. They're worshiping the law, not God. And so the situation is most of them, you know, even though they they are looking so earnestly are not finding God because they're looking the wrong place. He doesn't say a few. He says most. That's pretty bad. But when we start looking at the world around us and we say most of the people around us are not following God, they do not really know him and follow him. They have not placed their faith in him. They're seeking after something spiritual. They're seeking after something of significance. They're seeking after all these things, but they're looking in the wrong place. They're just like most of Israel at that point. A few have. This is the ones God has chosen. But the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scripture says, God has put them into a deep sleep. 
To this day he has shut their eyes so they do not see and closed their ears so they do not hear. Now, do they have a choice in that? Or is that God's sovereign choice and they had no say? I think we see evidence as we go back to Romans 1 and Romans 2 that God is just turning them over to the choices that they've made and allowed that to take hold in their life, to blind them, to shut their eyes, to close their ears, to harden their hearts. They began on that journey and he just solidified it. My prayer is that we all be ones God has chosen. And again, is that a sovereignty thing? Well, I think it's we've been chosen in Christ. As we are united with Christ, we become the chosen of God. Paul picks up again with a quote from Psalm 69. Uh, quote of David in verse nine, he says, likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare and a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see and let their backs be forever bent. What's he saying? He's praying that God would let what they pursue become what they get. You see, in our prosperity, we start thinking we're self-sufficient and we turn our back on God. In our ability to provide what we think we need or acquire what we think we need, we have a tendency to become self-reliant, to become dependent, to become inwardly focused instead of focused on God. The stuff in life can very easily become our focus and pull us away from being focused on the Lord. And Paul is saying here, you're not Paul, well, Paul quoting David is saying, look, David said this about Israel. Let their beautiful table become a snare, a trap, makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble. Let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see. Let their backs be bent forever. He's not prescribing a curse on them. He's saying, this is going to be the reality. This is the reality when we do not follow God, when we do not place our faith in him, when we do not remain that faithful remnant, when we do not stand with those who have never bowed a knee to Baal. It's about Christ. It is all about Christ and staying focused on him. Well, he goes on in the 11th verse. And in that verse, he says, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient. So God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wants his own people to become jealous and to claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater the blessing or greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. Ooh, 
there's an image for you. What Paul is now presenting is this idea that, look, God gave the message of salvation to the Gentiles, the message of the Messiah, the, the Christ, the, the atonement for our sin was presented to the Jews. It's There's hints of it in Abraham. There's hints of it all the way through. It's even more clear in the, the law. And then when you get through the prophets, man, it's all over the place. They had it, and they rejected it. But because of their rejection, it became available to the Gentiles. And we see the Gentiles coming into the fold. We see the Gentiles becoming part of the people of God. We see the Gentiles in right relationship with God. And we see the blessings that come from that right relationship with God, evidenced among the Gentiles. And Paul points out, look, because the Jews rejected it, the message went to the Gentiles. The Gentiles receive these benefits. And part of the reason for that is to save the Gentiles, yes. But it is also because the salvation of the Gentiles would kindle jealousy. Now, this isn't a bad jealousy. This is a, a jealousy that says, hey, wait a minute among the Jews, so that the Jews would see what God was doing among the Gentiles and went, wait a minute, that's supposed to be happening with us. We want that too. And that they would turn to Christ as well. And as as Paul lays out here, and as he sees it, and as God has inspired him to see it, that is the larger picture of what God is doing among the nations. He says in 13, I am saying all this, especially for you Gentiles. And here I said at the beginning, he shifts it around and he's now confronting the Gentiles more than the Jews, correcting the wrong attitudes and motivations among the Gentile believers of the church at Rome. I'm saying all this, especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me an apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this. For I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have. So I might save some of them. Now he's not saying he would save them, but so that through him, the message of the gospel would be heard and they would come to salvation. So understand that. 15, for since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. A resurrection, essentially. Life where there was death. So Paul sees it as, as part of this glorious tapestry of God, that because of the Jews rejecting, the Gentiles receive the offer of salvation. The gospel goes out among the Gentiles. The Gentiles come into the family of God. And as a result, the Jews who are now standing on the outside because they have rejected, see what's going on and desire it too, and come back into the fold. Think parable of the prodigal son. Except switch it around. Usually we may think of that parable and think, oh, we're the prodigal son. 
the 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 Jews in the story would be the the elder son that gets mad that the dad welcomes back the younger son. And and what Paul is presenting to the Gentile Christians at the church at Rome is almost the reverse of that. They are now in the position of being the older son, the ones that have received the gospel are right with God, are in the household of God, and they're seeing the wayward brethren, the Jews who had rejected the father, coming back in. Now, what is our attitude going to be towards them? And Paul's confronting them with their attitude. He's going to do it some more in the verses that follow. Because the Gentile believers had become rather arrogant in their position with Christ. Uh, especially in regards to how they viewed those of a Jewish background that had come to faith. So we need to unpack that. And we also need to look at how does this play out in our lives? What does this mean? Now, starting in 16, we we start to discuss some of this interrelationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And there's some, some imagery in here that we'll unpack as we go through it. In verse 16, And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. Just as the entire batch of dough is holy because a portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. Now, there's a reference there we may not get. A couple of references. One is this imagery of a tree, especially an olive tree, which is where he's going with this. In Throughout the Old Testament, an olive tree was a symbol that was used to represent Israel. One of the symbols used to represent Israel. And Paul's about to expand on that idea and really play with it some. But also this idea of, of dough, we, we may not grasp hold of that, the entire batch of dough. When you first made a big batch of dough in the Old Testament, you were just supposed to take off a measure of it and give that as an offering to God, a first fruits offering from that batch of dough. And because you, in faith, took a portion and dedicated it to God saying, I'm giving up some of what God has blessed me with and returning it to him because I trust he will provide more moving forward. It's that expression of faith and, and investing, if you will, in a certain sense, or acknowledging the sovereignty of God over our possessions that aren't really ours. We're just given stewardship of that helps move us forward. Paul uses that imagery from the Old Testament here, both of the tree and of that first offering, first fruits offering, if you will, um, to lay the groundwork. So again, since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy. That was set aside, set apart, um, just as the entire batch of dough is holy because a portion has been given as an offering is holy. Four, if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too 17. But some of the branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have broken off or have been broken off. What does that mean? Well, that means that the tree has been pruned. That means that there are some that have rejected that relationship with God, that holiness that was grounded in that relationship that Abraham had with God. 
And so they're not part of the tree anymore. Now, wait a minute. Part of the tree that is Israel isn't part of the tree anymore. Yeah. And we see that even with Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law when they were confronting him about his lineage and who he was and things of that nature. And and they started becoming very pompous and arrogant. You know, we are descendants of Abraham. We are, And he's going, no, you're not. You serve your father, the father of lies. You serve Satan is essentially what he's telling them. It's those that acknowledge me are the true descendants of Abraham. Ooh. Them's fighting words, and they were. But they were what Paul is clarifying here as well. Just because you are ethnically part of the Jewish people doesn't mean that you are spiritually right with God. There are those branches that are broken off. But he goes on. It's not just about the Jews. He's talking to the Gentiles. He says, and you Gentiles who were branches from, from a wild olive tree. You know, we've got this cultivated vineyard over here with this proper tree with the good roots and, and everything. And some of the branches got broken off. Yeah. But you guys, you're the stuff that's just growing out there all on its own, you know, just wild. You have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children. You see, we Gentiles, as we come to faith, become part of what we understand to be Israel, God's chosen people. That's why Peter, writing to the early church that was predominantly Gentile, could use the phrases, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, the same words used in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. Because he understood, just like Paul, that when we come into the body of belief, when we come into right relationship with God through faith in Christ, through the redemption that Christ provides, we are part of the children of God. Grafted in. So now you receive the blessings God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. Verse 18, it's a warning, but you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, not the root. So what's the warning there? He's saying, hey, <laughs> remember those branches that got broken off? Don't become one of them. Don't get all inflated. Oh, look how great we are. We're part of the tree now. Be grateful. Be reverent. Be thankful that God has grown this tree and you are now included in that tree. You are part of the tree. But don't let arrogance come in and ruin that. And that's part of what was happening in the church at Rome. The Gentile believers were kind of arrogant towards the Jewish believers. We don't need any of that. We don't need, no, they, they don't need to be saved by the law. 
frankly, they can be saved apart from knowing any of the Jewish history. But there is such a richness there and a tradition of faith, and Christ is the culmination, the fulfillment of the law. And so it behooves them to understand that the Old Testament shows us the nature and character of God, that the laws point us towards our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And it, they didn't need to ignore that, become arrogant and think they're above it and that it has nothing to do with them or they're better than the Jews. No, they needed to understand they were all together. They were united. They were now one when they used to be separate. Well, he goes on in 19 and he says, well, you may say those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes. But remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Now that sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? Again, Paul is in no way emphasizing a works salvation here. And I don't believe he's actually advocating that as individuals, they could lose their salvation because I, that's my one tenet of Calvinism I'm on board with. The, the whole idea that the perseverance of the saints, that once saved, always saved. If you have come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it changes your life and it's forever. That there is nothing you can do to remove yourself from that. And there's nothing anyone else can do to remove you from that. It is in God's hands. But Paul does constantly throughout his writings to the church remind all of us who claim the name of Christ to remain faithful, to stay steadfast till the end, to be an overcomer who makes it till the end. Because if we make the journey part way and then decide, eh, I'm not going to do this anymore and walk away from it, we did not have that relationship with Christ. We did not have that life-changing relationship with Christ as our Lord and Savior if we do not live our life, all of it, from this point forward in relationship with Christ. If your faith in Christ is something that you can set down and walk away from and it makes no difference in your life, then you don't have what you think you do. And before you go, wow, Scott, that sounds really judgmental. I don't think that jives with what scripture says. Then I suggest you read it. I suggest you check out the Sermon on the Mount. I suggest you look at where Jesus talks about those that come to him claiming, Lord, we, you know, we, we did all these things in your name. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. You may have done all this, quote, good stuff in my name. I mean, you're casting out demons, you're doing miracles, you're proclaiming me, but I don't know you. You're strangers to me. You do the right things. You say the right things, but you don't know me. Or over in John's, what, first epistle letter, where he talks about how if you claim to have the love of Christ in your life, you claim to be a, a believer, and yet you do not love your brother. 
you know, you may claim all the right things and do all the right things over here. But when it really comes down to it, if you don't love your brother, then your faith isn't real. And you are deceiving yourself. You see, we each have to examine our own hearts. Are we going through the motions? Are we doing all the right stuff? But we don't have the relationship with Christ because it is all about faith in Christ. That is where we, if you will, appropriate that gift of salvation. It is a gift that comes through faith. We do not earn it. So we can't fall into the mindset of, if I do all of these things, then I will be right with God because that would be earning it and we don't earn it. So Paul's cautioning the Gentiles saying, look, the Jews, these Jews that you were grafted in, in the place of these branches broken off, rejected God, they refused. And in fact, he says it so clearly. Uh, but you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, not the root. Well, you may say those branches are broken off to make room for me. And yes, but remember those branches were broken off. Why? Because they didn't believe in Christ. They didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. Now, don't become like them is what he's essentially saying. Don't think highly of yourself. Fear what could happen. Live with the reality that if you don't know Christ, then you're a branch that's going to get broken off. Don't go there. Don't let that be your reality. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. You know, and part of that's personal and part of that is generational as well. We may think, oh, we're solid. So, you know, our downline is solid. That doesn't necessarily ring true. We don't see that happening in Israel. So why would we think that's happening here? Every one of us must turn to Christ in faith. Trusting in him. Verse 22 says, notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe towards those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You, by nature, were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. Now, what is Paul saying there? 
Well, he's using the analogy of the olive tree. And what they would do normally is you cultivated olive trees. You would have the branches that were more cultivated. They were cultivated to, to grow in a certain way, to produce a certain type of olive fruit that, you know, maybe a, a plumper fruit or a fruit that produced more oil. Than it. There were different variations and they worked for generations to shape these cultivated um, olive trees. But the wild roots were stronger, hardier, had more vigor to them. So normally they would take the branches of a cultivated olive and graft onto the roots of a wild olive to get that, that hardiness. And we see that in plants today. Where, where I live, roses are kind of a big deal. And here in Texas, they, they will graft various types of roses onto a, a more wild root stock, a more native root stock that is, is hardy and able to withstand this environment and, and is more accustomed to this environment so that it can provide that vigor to the grafted on branches, which are more specialized. And we see that with these olive trees, that that's what's going on. And it would be normal to take your cultivated branches and graft them to a more vigorous wild olive root. But you wouldn't take a wild olive branch and graft it onto a cultivated tree. There would be no benefit to that. That wouldn't improve your stock. That would just kind of muddy the waters. And so Paul is saying, look, you realize that's what God has done. It is contrary to nature, yet God has done it. And if he's willing to go against how you would naturally do things when you're cultivating a tree to include you, then don't you think he would even more easily include those cultivated branches that used to be part of the tree back in if they turned to Christ? It doesn't mean that the tree is a set size and we're going to lop off some to make room for the others. That was part of the analogy. The ones broken off made room for others. But the truth is God can put as many branches in the tree as he wants. And he does. And it's all in that truly vigorous, holy root that comes from Abraham. Now, this isn't a nationalistic, this isn't an ethnic statement. This is a spiritual statement that we are grafted into the spiritual tree of Abraham. And I, for one, am thankful. And as the warning Paul gives to the Gentiles there at Rome rings true to you today and to me today, if we are of a Gentile background, we need to be thankful, grateful unto God, and not the least bit arrogant, but mindful that if we turn away from God, then we don't have a part of the tree. We do not belong in the tree. It is only by the grace of God through Christ that we can say, I'm in, I'm part of the tree. And we need to rejoice and celebrate 
when God takes those branches that had been broken off because of their disobedience and rejection of God, and he grafts them back in. We need to celebrate that. For those of you from a Jewish background, understand there is still cause for celebration there as you have come to faith in Christ. Paul's reminder to the church at Rome, one tree. Some of them were cultivated branches. Some of them were wild branches that got grafted in. They all share a common root now and are part of one tree. So the Jews weren't supposed to look at the Gentiles, Christians within the church in Rome, the Jewish Christians weren't supposed to look at the Gentile Christians and go, yeah, but you're not. And the Gentiles weren't supposed to look at the Jewish Christians and go, yeah, but we're, you know, no, they were supposed to be in it together understanding what Paul talked about in so many other places. They're one body. It's no longer about I'm Jewish. I'm Gentile. It's about, we are the redeemed in Christ. And so there's a grounding, a, 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 well, excuse the tree reference, but a rootedness that is to be found there in Christ. Now, picking up in verse 25, um, well, Paul starts talking about salvation again. He's been talking about salvation, but here he's, he's expanding the idea a little. He says, I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, that you will not feel proud or so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Now, what's he saying? He's again, don't, don't get arrogant. Don't get proud. Don't get all, you know, stuck on yourself about this. I want you to understand the mystery. I want you to understand the reality of what's going on here. God's work here so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. So that you'll stay focused, rooted. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles come to Christ. So all Israel will be saved as the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Now, what has he said there? Paul is, uh, he's, he's kind of playing with words a little bit. He is pulling them in and talking to both the Jewish background Christians and the Gentile background Christians and saying, I want you to understand, dear brothers and sisters, that's all of the redeemed there at Rome. Listen to this. So that you won't feel proud about yourselves. Now that could work both ways. Proud because of your Jewish background or proud because you're a Gentile and you've got access to the kingdom now. Either way, you shouldn't feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts. But this will last only until the full number of Gentiles come to Christ. And what is the full number of Gentiles? We don't know. Is it a set number? Number? Well, you know, assume so. Don't know what it is. There's no secret code hidden in the scripture that tells us, you know, it's those that will. Those that God is, is holding off so that they can come to salvation. But there will be a harvest among the Gentiles. Does it mean that or among the Jews. Does it mean that every Jew will come to faith in Christ? No, that has never been the case. 
but their jealousy, as Paul has already talked about, will be aroused because of what they see God doing with the Gentiles, and they will long for that and come to him. There's coming a day. The one who will rescue comes from Jerusalem. That's a reference to Jesus. And he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. Now, it's interesting there. Um, you know, what's Paul talking about? So he's doing a little bit of wordplay. He's already established that the Gentiles have been grafted in to the tree, that the olive tree that is Israel. So at this point, since he's already used that analogy, when he says Israel, who's he talking about? Just the Jews, or is he talking about all believers? Uh, I think in some regards, he is talking about all believers when he talks about what God is going to do among Israel. But then those that he's calling away from ungodliness, those that, that, um, that he has made a covenant with and he will take away their sins, does he mean the Jewish people in that? Yes. Does he mean all the redeemed in that? Well, yes, because he takes away the sins of the world, doesn't he? All who place their faith and trust in him. So it all just kind of ties together. We need to understand we are together in this. Well, it goes on in verse 28. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news. So here we're back to, you know, probably ethnically in Israel, the Jewish people. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, and this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels, and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. What's he mean by that? He means for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Had God not set a standard of obedience and sin, then we wouldn't be there. As Back to Paul's discussion of the law. I am guilty because of the law. And I broke it. If there was no law, then I can't be guilty of violating the law. But there is a law. And it is, I would say, it is God's nature and character that establishes that law. It is his nature and character that says, this is right and this is wrong. And we go afoul of that. And we become wrong. Now, they're rebels. God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. See, God's mercy is for everyone. The Jews rejected Christ. The message of the gospel went out into the world. The Gentiles responded, but the Jews are also responding to God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on 
everyone. The invitation is out there. His mercy is out there. His mercy is for the Gentile and the Jew. The message of the gospel of redemption, of right relationship with God, of forgiveness with sin, of the atoning work of Christ is for everyone. And everyone needs it. Now, Paul finishes out the chapter with a section that starts in 33. He says, How great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge! How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. He's proclaiming how great God is. God is awesome. He's got a plan, and it's beyond us. We get glimpses of it, and we can rejoice in that. But how great! Or God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Verse 34, for who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who can know enough to give him advice? That comes from Isaiah, the 40th chapter. And then he goes on, and who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? Quote from Job there, for those of you studying Job. For everything comes from him and exists by his power, and is intended for his glory, all glory to him forever. Amen. Paul rounds it out with a praise for God, because he has been explaining and is still trying to drive home the point to both the Gentiles and the Jewish background believers there in the church at Rome, that it is all about Christ It's not all about your background. It's not all about what you've done. It's not all about who has control, power, whatever within the life of the church. It is all about Jesus. And he is the one that makes all the difference for eternity in each and every life. We need him. We need to proclaim his praises. We need to worship him. And Paul is finishing out here with this this expression of worship before God, proclaiming his greatness, reminding himself and everyone else that, look, we don't know God's thoughts. It's beyond us. We, We can't give God advice. What sort of advice could we give God? He's better at it, knows more, and is more wise. So we've got nothing. It needs to come the other way. We need to receive the advice of God. We need to follow after his thoughts. We haven't given him so much that he owes us anything. We owe him everything. And then Paul quotes, as he's prone to do, he quotes from, um, well, Greek Stoic philosophers here. And he does that often. He quotes from literary works from the Greco-Roman world that the Gentile populace would have been well acquainted with, as some of the Jewish populace would be as well. And here he quotes from secular Greek philosophers. And I think one of the one of the little tidbits we can pick up here is, you know, it's okay. It's okay to quote truth 
from secular, what we consider secular sources. Because God's truth is being revealed. And sometimes even the lost stumble on to the truth of God. And if we can use that nugget of truth that they've managed to glimpse to help them understand and lead them into a relationship with Christ, let's go for it. Paul set a great example. You can go back and look at his encounter on Mars Hill. Great example of how he took a an, an idol to an unknown God and used it as a tool to witness and proclaim about the one true God to all those there. And it had impact. Verse 36 again, for everything, this is what he's quoting from the Greek Stoics. He says, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. What a prayer to close on. All glory to him forever. Amen.